first of all, I want to tell you that I have mad respect for you. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. Like, thanks a lot. Like honestly, like seeing you hustle during the first year, like at Stanford, you came you came to Stanford without the technical background, right? Like if you remember your master was in business. Um, yeah, my master's degree was like half technical. It was an analytics and management. So mm. half technical. It was an introduction to technical stuff. But like your like I saw you take all the math classes to build your foundation. I saw you take all the tough technical classes, like super advanced, all the deep learning, machine learning, everything really you could get your hands on. You took like what, 50% more of the credits than was necessary to graduate? Yeah, and exactly, approximately. You yeah. had a really big and purposeful master project to help your country. Like this yeah, was... exactly. Massive. Yeah, it was. It was really hard. I think we're going to talk about it after. But it was. It was really, really hard. And it's true that the classes that I've taken were mostly technical, but honestly, they were manageable. The thing is, I first of all, I really like mathematics. Uh, I've studied mathematics in in high school. Like I was specialized in mathematics, so always really liked that. Um, I've always said that I should have done a bachelor in engineering. I've regretted that. And that's why I've changed after. Ah. Um, yeah, because I, I, I just regret it. Although, uh, the truth is, um, in high school, I was really, really introverted. I was really, really shy, but like shy to the point that I couldn't like answer the phone, couldn't talk to a waiter. And so going to a business school really helped me in that regard, basically. Uh, mm. now I can talk in public. Like this exercise that we're doing right now is normally really, really hard for me and for my personality. And so I would say that doing a business school was great just for that aspect. Um, but I think that I just like engineering more. I just prefer engineering. It's the truth. Gotcha. So can you maybe give a bit of a introduction for everyone who doesn't know you? Um, introduction. Uh, I'm Moroccan and French. Lived uh, 18 years in Morocco. In Casablanca before um, continuing with my studies in Spain in Barcelona for three years in a school called Esade Business School. Um, I've done an exchange in my fourth year in Cornell University, so I was already in the U.S. before coming to Stanford at Cornell, and then I worked uh, in Paris for about uh, two years. Went to London Business School for my first master's degree in analytics and management, and then went to Stanford. Uh, for education data science. So I've essentially been in many countries <laughs> and worked in many countries, but here I am now. Right now I'm in Morocco, just visiting my family and going back to San Francisco uh, in a few weeks. It's pretty much it. So I would say my background is like half technical and half uh, businessy in a yeah. sense. So how have the two years at Stanford been? Hard, really hard, really hard, but like, extremely enriching in the sense that so first of all for us was different um because the first year was still um was still like covid years essentially yeah i really wanted to avoid that when i came to stanford but the truth is we we could really feel it still the first year and so that was really hard mentally because i've done my first master's degree which was one year uh during covid and so Aww. we stayed in our room and and studying in our room, and that's that's not ideal, especially for a business school. That's that's really not ideal. 
because you want to talk to people. You want to, you're just interested in what people do. And so the first year at Stanford was uh, a bit hard, especially because when you go to Stanford, the thing you want to do really is to discover what you like, to talk to other people. Everyone is so passionate there. So you just want to talk to a lot of people and discover what they like and just discover new things. And it was really, really hard to do the first year. I've done that the second year way more. But uh, yeah, that was the, the main issue for us, I would say. How did you... Like, it, it must have been weird because for everyone who was already at school coming back from COVID, like a lot of the clubs just didn't exist anymore. A lot of the events didn't exist anymore, and especially the big ones. They weren't really keen on organizing because they were afraid of lockdowns again the winter after. So how did you go around actually meeting people then? Being really honest with you, I haven't met a lot of people the first year. <laughs> the thing is, as I to as I told you, I'm an introvert. So like, I can stay in my room for a year if you don't tell me to go out. <laughs> that's the truth. Like that's just my personality. But uh, yeah, the truth is, I've, I've that's why I've taken so many classes, like technical classes, the first year. So like, okay, if I don't go out of my room, at least I'm doing something uh, that has value. She's like just like studying and working on technical classes instead of. Uh, meeting people. And then I had this plan of meeting people the second year. And that happened actually. Um, I would say that the main advantage of Stanford is that you really discover what you like, you discover your passion, yeah. right? And you spend also so much time with yourself just working on the classes that you've chosen. And that that's something that is really important because in other systems, maybe in European system, you don't choose your classes. You choose your stream and then the classes are just like everyone takes the same classes. Whereas in Stanford, it was really, really different in that, uh, that matter. Uh, you could choose like basically all the classes, uh, that you, that you took, right? And that, that's something that is typical of the, the EDS program. We had so much flexibility in the classes that we took. And so I would say that I spent two years building my passions, building my personality, even though I didn't meet so many people the first year, because I really thought of, okay, what do I like? What do I want to do? This is, these are like, these are the years that I'm building my personality and building my, uh, like the beginning of my career. And so I really focused on that. Like, what do I want to do for the rest of my life? Of course, that's a bit radical to say that because it can always change. But the truth is I've always known what I like. I, I've always known that I liked education. I've always said it. And so that was the opportunity to really dive into that and to see what data science applied to education was. Why education? Why education? The truth is, I think that in all societies, that is the most important domain. That's the root of absolutely everything that happens in the society. If you don't have a good education system, I believe that you cannot have a balanced society. And that's true for like all domains of life, all aspects of life. Because if you think about it, education is going to affect everything that you do in your life. Of course, education and family as well, like uh, your network uh, is going to influence the person that you become. But I would say that education is, is just the thing that influences you the most. 
because you're going to spend so many years in the education system, especially now in our generation. People just study so much more than like 50 years ago. And so if you think about it, you're going to study the first like 25 years of your life, maybe less or more. But this is literally more than a quarter of your life that you spend studying. And you can even study after that. But as a general rule, you spend so much time with your professors, with your peers. And so if you don't have something that is structured, organized, and a quality education system, I really do believe that you cannot have a balanced and sane society. And so that's why for me, that is the most important domain. And especially when it comes to applying data science, I did not want to apply data science to something that was meaningless to me, at least. The two things that I had in mind were healthcare and education. But I just consider, for me at least, that education is also the root of healthcare. If you don't have a good education system, you don't have good doctors. And so first focus on having a good education system, then we'll see for the rest. I just want to focus on the root of the problem. That's it. Mm, gotcha. Yeah, I can relate to that. The education system having the biggest lever to the most leverage to really shift society into one way or the other. Yeah. Yes. I would say, yeah, it's, it's just like, it's, it's the root of everything. And also, as you know, like I come from Morocco and the truth is the education system is still not optimal. There's a lot of things to improve. And right now I believe uh, that 25% of the country is still illiterate. It's mainly old people to be fair, um, but still it's a lot. And I think there's a lot of things that we can improve in our education system. And I, I really love the fact that Morocco is, is going in the right direction, not only for education, but for everything. I think that we're becoming like the first part of Africa step-by-step. Step. We're not yet, but I can guarantee you that in a few years, Morocco will be the first part of Africa. And I'm sure about that. I'm 100% sure. First because part, we're going you mean, in like, the right direction for so many things. Economically in the top? Like e everything. Not, not only economically, but also the influence of the country. Okay. Also the influence of the country. I think it, just, just look at the World Cup. We're not a rich country at all. Yeah. And we managed to go to the semifinals. So if you think about it, for you, that may be nothing, but for us, it was really a symbol. Like, look at the budget that we have, look at where we come from, yeah. and look at where we're going. Like, reaching the semifinal, doing better than, than Germany, for example, yeah. <laughs> in the World Cup. You see, no, but I, I'm joking, but, but that, that's true. Like, for us, that was a really strong symbol that we're doing well with the resources that we have right now. That was really important for us. Yeah. How many... What's the population of Morocco? 38 million at the moment. 38 million. It's like, yeah. what's the, is it progressing or is it, is it increasing heavily or like, what is the? Yeah, it, it is still increasing. I mean, not a lot, but it's still increasing. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it is still increasing. Can you get not like sure about we, the forecast of population? We talked about Morocco and especially like the educational problems that are close to your heart. But for everyone who 
doesn't know anything about Morocco, can you introduce your home country and the problems that it faces? Wow, that's such a hard question. Like, how would you talk about your country if we asked you? Um, well, it's a country in North Africa, northwest of Africa, um, just below Spain. Um, what can I tell you about it? Um, we speak a lot of languages there, if you haven't figured out yet. <laughs> that's, that's a problem I always talk about. The Moroccans do speak a lot of languages because... I mean, we've been colonized by, by Spain, we've been colonized by, by France as well. So um, as you might have seen, I have a French accent because that's also my first language. Uh, but the truth is, um, so we, like in the north of the country, they speak like a mix of Spanish and Moroccan. Moroccan is like standard Arabic, but it's, it's slightly different. Um, I always explain that to people. But for example, if I talk to an Egyptian, uh, he or she uh, might not understand what I say. Yeah, and so yeah, it's just a melting pot of, of cultures. It's a lot of different cultures that are uh, that are mixed. You have so the influence of France, the influence of Spain, the influence of Arabs, of uh, Berbers, of just a lot of, of different cultures. And I would say it's a mix also of um, traditional and modern country in the sense that you have a very um, traditional aspect in this country as well. We have some some villages, even some cities that are still very traditional, very rooted in, in, in traditions. But you also have big cities like Casablanca, which I mean right now, that is uh, just investing a lot in, in technology mm -hmm. and and just like modern stuff in general. So you kind of have two worlds in Morocco, I would say. Um, there is such a big difference depending on this on the city you're in. That's the truth. Um, yeah. And again, I think that we're one of the African countries that right now invests the most uh, in technology and, and data science, for example, computer science in general. Is Casablanca the capital? No, it's the economic capital. The capital is Rabat. Rabat. Okay. Okay. I mean, a lot of people yeah, it's, it's probably like one hour away. Marrakesh, because it's like the most pop they are one for tourism, I believe. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Okay. And Casablanca is the center of economics in Morocco. Exactly. Well, you, essentially, everyone comes to work here. So. Okay. You're, you're bordering like south with Western Sahara and to the east with Algeria or who's east of you? Yeah. Yes. Yes. That's the idea. I mean, um, we that that that's a sensitive topic, but we say that um, Sahara is actually Moroccan. Mm -hmm. We don't call it Western Sahara; we call it Morocco. Okay. Gotcha. In our case, uh, but there are there any other countries that are bordering? Uh, Mauritania. Okay. We have Mauritania and Algeria. Okay, gotcha. Hmm. All right. Okay. So, why come back to education? Like you had your capstone project. Capstone project is the, the master's project, master's thesis that you write at the Education Data Science Masters. What was it about and why is it so important? So the, the master's project that I've done um, was done with the Ministry of Education 
uh, in Morocco. And the idea was just that in Morocco and in many other countries, the dropout rate of students aged 6 to 18, like K-12 students, um, is really, really high. And in Morocco, it's especially true at the age of like 12 to 13 years old and even after. Um, the dropout rate, more or less in primary school, is like 3%, but then I think it rises to like 14% in middle school and approximately like 11 or 12% in high school, if I remember well, um, which is really, really, really high and really expensive also for society as a societal cost, social cost. Um, and so the idea of that project was essentially to take information about students uh, for example, the the grades uh, of a certain student, whether he or she has a scholarship uh, and other inputs like that, whether he or she has a handicap. And then based on uh, like more than 100 variables, you essentially output a probability of dropping out the next year. And this way, you can talk to the student and talk to the parents before the student decides to drop out. And so that's also why I'm telling you we're going in the right direction because right now we're trying to apply data science to different domains, to healthcare, to education. And that's something that I, that is really good. The fact that the Ministry of Education has decided to do a project like that shows me that my country wants to invest in the future, wants to invest in data science and new technology. And I'm really, really happy about it. And that's why I contributed. It was fully voluntary. Um, and I'm, I'm really glad I did that. Really glad. Because it was a really interesting, really hard project, to be honest. It's not done yet. There's a lot of things to do. But at least uh, I've contributed to it. I've worked on it. And I'm really, really happy about uh, the result as well. The preliminary results are really, really promising. What data were you... Like, what did the data look like you were working with? So the, da the data was essentially... Um, so we have a centralized system that the professors have to write the grades of the students in a centralized system, like all okay. professors across the country in public schools. Um, it's the equivalent of Canvas, let's say, but like okay. at the national level. Mm -hmm. And so you have all information about the students, whether it's like uh, academic information or something else. So all the grades, the absences... Uh, whether you've been late or not to class, okay. uh, whether your absence was authorized or unauthorized, for example. Yeah. And the list is very long. So all the information centralized, saved from starting elementary school up to high school of exactly. every student. Exactly. Yes. Wow. Exactly. Quite a powerful data source. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's very powerful. They've put that in place, I think, in 2013. Okay. Um, and it's really good, again. Um, I think we can do a lot more projects with the data that we have. That's also kind of a problem that we have in Morocco, is that we're starting to have and to collect a lot of data, but we're not using that data. And that was also part of this idea that, okay, we're going to do this massive project. We're going to use the data that we have finally to contribute to the country. So right now we have so much data, clean or not clean. Of course, it can be kind of messy, <laughs> uh, unfortunately. But, you know, the data that I had was rather messy. But at the same time, was I was surprised. It was really organized. Like, the system is pretty good. I think there's a lot of things that we can do. So I'm, I'm really happy and proud about that. Nice. 
Okay. Yeah. And your goal was to predict if a kid will drop out based on all the features that you could observe. Exactly, exactly. So I've really simplified the problem in the sense that I've done a binary classification. The thing is, I've decided to present the problem this way, but you could do it in, in a lot of different ways. I've just simplified the problem. It's a binary classification. Are you going to drop out or not? And to do that, of course, you calculate the probability and then you have a cutoff, uh, which tells you whether it's one or zero, essentially. But like, wait, to understand it correctly, you have yeah. then predictions for a lot of students and for some students, it will tell you 20%. For some students, it will tell you 100%. What are you going to do with all the students? Like, what, what was the cutoff? Like, where would you say, okay, this is a high probability case and you should intervene? Well, the thing is that you... you, you hyper-tune the, the, the cutoff, but let's say it's 50% for the sake of simplification. You, you put a cutoff at 50%. Then the thing is you have to verify whether your algorithm worked well or not, mm -hmm. right? And so in my case, I could catch like 80% of the people that really dropped out. Yeah. That was the idea. Like I tested my model in real data after that because in machine learning, you have a training phase and then a testing phase. And so you, you, you model your algorithm in the training phase. And then essentially you verify whether your work is good or not in the testing phase. Mm -hmm. And the thing that I've seen is that my work was actually pretty good because I could catch like 80%. The 80. problem with this thing is that, yeah. So if, let's say, um, you say that everyone is going to drop out. Then in that case, you catch 100% of the dropouts. Yeah. That's a pretty stupid algorithm, right? Yeah. And so you have to, you have to, to, kind of balance your filter, right? You have to to uh, balance the, the number of people that you flag as dropouts. Mm -hmm. So you essentially want a balance between precision and recall uh, in data science mm -hmm. in that case. You don't want to say that everyone is going to drop out, uh, but at the same time, you do want to catch a lot of dropouts. But so you, you just want to have a... You had real data? You had the real data if someone dropped out or not. Yes, yeah. exactly. Yes. And then you just like made yeah. the decision how many of them that actually dropped out you wanted to include in your uh, testing data set. That is correct. Yeah, okay. that is correct. Gotcha. So the, the thing is, I was working. So it's a choice that you make as a data scientist. Mm -hmm. So let's say you don't catch someone that really dropped out. In that case, it, it's really bad because someone just dropped out and is doing something that's like working at the age of 12 or whatever, right? And so you do want to catch them. But at the same time, if you say that everyone is going to drop out, then you have to make so many meetings with the kids, so many meetings with the parents. You have to balance that aspect of cost and at the same time of, of catching the dropout. So you have you have to balance these, these two aspects. But the truth is in that case misclassifying a dropout is worse. Like, I really don't want to miss uh, someone that would drop out. That was that was my goal when I did that. And so in data science terms, essentially, you want to have an average or good precision, but a really good recall, which mm -hmm. means that you focus on your F2 score. And again, that means that you 
essentially you want to have a good filter, but your focus is on, is on like not uh, missing a potential dropout. You really, you really want to focus on these kids that are at risk. You really want to flag them. Okay. So really... Okay, gotcha. That makes that makes a lot okay. of sense. All right. Um, now, like theoretically, now that the mm -hmm. Ministry of Education or if the Ministry of Education would have that model as a tool that they could apply on a day-to-day -day mm -hmm. basis and they could share that with school districts, schools, even teachers, what did you look at like possible interventions as well, or like in, in real life, what could be possible interventions that you then do if you see someone is at risk of dropping out? Well, the truth is right now, I would say, I would say it's still very, very theoretical. Like what I wanted to do, because I essentially did that uh, almost alone. I mean, I coded the whole thing alone. I've, I've been helped by um, a few professors as well. Uh, but the idea was just to show what we can do with the data that we have. I cannot okay. do such a project at the national level alone. You need so yes, yes. many people okay. to do that, um, to build the whole data pipeline, to build the whole thing. You need a lot more than one person. Oh, 100%. I, I do not have the necessary skills and I do not have the time to do such a project alone. You need like a lot of people. And no, so totally. to answer your question, like what are the potential uh, things that you could do once you have this probability? Um, well, the truth is I've thought of a few things, but like just I don't see what else you can do besides talking to the kid, talking to the parents, focusing on the kid as well, like seeing whether it's a problem of uh, – of just like grades, like the kid cannot follow, or I will give you a concrete example to answer your question. Actually, um, there's a problem that we have in Morocco. We've seen that a lot of girls aged like 11, 12, more or less, leave school, right? They drop out, especially in the countryside. Can you guess why? Eight girls age 13. What did you say? Uh, 10 to 12, ten, let's say. 10 to 12. Uh, girls aged 10 to 12, mainly in the countryside. I would assume because they're getting the period. Um, so what? is on, like in very conservative communities, that would mean that she's a woman now and would be able to marry. That is not exact. You're, you're on the right track. That is not exact. The reason, or one of the reasons that um, some people here identified is that they don't have hygiene products. They don't have access to hygiene, right? And so they're just ashamed of going to school. That's and if you think about out? it, it's such they drop out. They do not go to school. They don't just miss a couple of days whenever they're on the period. They just drop well, out and not come back. Sure, at first they miss, they miss, they miss, and then they just drop out at hand because you you lose touch with with school, essentially you lose touch with reality. 
Yeah, that, that, that happens. And there are NGOs in Morocco that uh, distribute hygiene products uh, to these girls, essentially. And so that, that was just like a very specific, very niche example. But I just wanted to tell you and to show you that there are some very simple problems that you can solve if you identify them with data science, right? It could be anything. But you first have to understand what is the factor that influences the fact of either missing school a lot or dropping out. Because at the end of the day, it's very similar. Like if you miss school, like if you miss 50% of your classes, you're almost a dropout in that case, right? Yeah. Or at least like the quality of, of, of education decreases uh, drastically. And so, again, first of all, you have to understand why a certain student has, has been flagged. I've also used some methods to understand like individually, what is the factor? What is the variable that influenced the probability the most? One of the things in my project was also explainability, like trying to understand the number that you get, right? Like whether it's uh, grades, whether it's something else, you want to understand why the student would make such a decision. If you understand in a perfect world why a student would decide to drop out, in that case, you can adapt your measure. Is it a hygiene product? Is it just that the student is not interested anymore? Is it that the student wants to, I don't know, work with his or her father? Or There's a lot of things that, that could happen in the life of the student, but the truth is, when you have such a high number, like 30% of dropout, 40%, 14%, like uh, at the national level, it means that there is a pattern that you could uh, slow down or at least decrease, mm-hmm. right? And that's what we want to do. Yeah, I can see how the interventions are quite complex, like, or at least the, the different interventions that you could choose from. You really have to understand the context. Hmm. Yeah, that's really exciting, though. Really, really exciting. What's the it mandatory? Is very, it's, a, it's a very hard problem. What's, mean, the mani- what's the mandatory amount of years of education in Morocco? That's a good question. Let me remember because it changed a lot. Uh, I don't want to give you. Uh, uh, like, wrong information <laughs> that's a good i've actually part. written it in my i've yeah. written it in my thesis I've, I've actually i think it was 16 when i wrote it 16 uh, but i have to verify i think so i'm not sure about that about this information um well if i if i actually uh get my thesis right now i can tell you like um, <laughs> the last information that i have wait that that's the introduction of my thesis actually i think it was 16 years old um, yeah, I mean, I guess I can give you the information after, but, um, let, let's say 16 for now, cause that's the last okay. information that I have in mind. Okay. And you yeah. said the dropout rate over all of, wait, was it just high school or did you say, do you have a number for, for the whole overall? No, so I will give you the exact, yeah. So it's so a number that I have in mind right now is 16 years old for uh, for uh, the compulsory age. That's yeah. the last information that I have in, in, in an official document. 
And um, the other thing, so for the numbers of dropouts, I have 3.6% in primary school in 2019, Mm -hmm. 14.3% in middle school, and 10.4% in high school, which is really, really, really high. Yeah. Yeah, I looked up high school dropout rate in the U.S., which is somewhere between 4.6 and 5.1. And yeah, Japan, so. the high school dropout rate is 1.2%. Although I think for Japan, uh, while it has one of the lowest dropout rates, I know that I remember a guy at, uh, at LDT, at the LDT master, he was he was a former teacher in Japan, uh, Masaki, and he's now he he tries to tackle this problem because they have not just like they, they, they there's a bit of a problem there with measuring dropout because people just don't show up. They're officially still enrolled. They're not officially dropped out, but they just stop coming to school, and then they have like all sorts of issues, kind of like catching up again because they're like just not interested. Like a lot of it just comes back to feeling not engaged and not feeling like it makes sense or leads anywhere. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's, uh, n- numbers, numbers sometimes can be a bit misleading. Yeah. yeah tough. Dropout rates. That w- that would be really cool if they would implement that on a, on a national level. I mean, as you said, it takes a lot. It's not something you can do overnight because alone alone the data structure, alone the pipeline takes not only big project group to integrate it, but then also maintenance. I mean, this has to run yeah. all the time. Yeah, again, you need so many people. It takes it takes a few years to, to implement something like that. Um, but I have... Uh, I really think it's possible. Like, uh, I really think it's possible to do that. And again, we're going in the right direction. And I think they're going to do much more than just that. Uh, the current minister is working a lot, a lot uh, on that. So, yeah, I think the country is going to change drastically uh, in the next few years. I think you're going to see Morocco rise a lot more than what we've seen in the previous years. And I'm really happy about that. Again, I told you, I'm, um, I'm a proud Moroccan, and I really yeah. think our country is going to be a powerful country in Africa. It's already a powerful country in Africa, but like even more than that. And I think now, and the good thing is that we've joined like international tests um, in 2018. For example, we've joined PISA in 2018, right? So that's why I'm telling you, I have the feeling that now the government really wants to be compared to the other country at the international level. We want to want to get more, want to see more, want to be compared to the other countries. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I'm telling you, we, we're making that effort of, okay, let's, let's compare to other countries. Let's see what, what the others are doing. Let's see what we can do. And so you have this movement now in Morocco and more and more people are coming back because that was an issue that we had. Uh, especially because we've been colonized by France. So what, what used to happen is that people would just like study in, in France after uh, their baccalaureate. So when they're 18 years old, um, they just uh, go to higher education in France and they never come back. But I feel like now more and more people come back to the country 
to help and contribute uh, to the economy and to the life of the country in general. And that's also why I've decided to do my capstone project with the government, because I want to show that people going to Stanford, people going to Harvard can actually come back and contribute. I really insist on that. I really want to come back one day and massively contribute to the country. And I'm sure it will happen. Whether I come back definitely or not, I'm sure that I will contribute. And I have right now a lot of projects at the national level in Morocco. We can talk about that if you want, but I really want to do a lot for this country because I see the potential that we have. I see all the things that we can do with the people that we have and with the economy that we have. Because again, we're not a poor country. We're just a country that needs more skilled people, more structure, more organization. That's it. We need just leaders. We need people, like good managers that can structure a project and do like a project from A to Z, essentially. I feel like that's what we're lacking right now. We have very good mathematicians, very good engineers, but they just need more structure, more organization. That's really what I want to do. And that's why I think that we need people that have like both the business or management aspect and the technical aspect. That's also very important. So that's why I've done my first master's degree. That's why I've done the EDS program at Stanford because you need people that know the field, know business, know education, but also know the technical aspect in order to manage and lead a technical team, right? And bring a project to life. Yeah. And yeah, that's pretty much it. And right now, as I told you, we've, we've, we've talked about it. Um, I think I've, I've talked to you as well about that, but I really want to bring the biggest e-learning platform to Morocco. We nowadays, like right now, as of 2023, I would say we have one good e-learning platform but it's only for people age 16 to 18 and it's not free it's not very expensive but it's not free and as of today we have zero e-learning platform of good quality i insist on that we do have e-learning platforms but it's just like messy notes or things like that nothing very structured with videos with quizzes and so my next project for this country, and I hope that I will make it happen, is to bring a massive e-learning platform so that everyone can learn for free from the age of 6 to 18 with the greatest professors of the country. So like videos prepared by the best professors with quizzes, with notes, and also with an AI tutor because a lot of people need like external professors, like need to pay extra classes, right? In order to get help. But now with the rise of LMMs, you can do that with AI and the cost is decreasing step-by-step. Step. And that's what Khan Academy has done. I think Canmigo now is $9 per month, um, which is cheap, but still I would say an obstacle for 
uh, Moroccan education. And so my goal in the next few years would be to bring something like that for zero dollar and with a weak internet connection. That's the problem. Now we have approximately 80% of the country that has access to internet. The issue is that most of them is only on the phone, not on the computer. So you need a very good platform on the phone. The second thing is that people have access to limited internet, like a rather weak internet, if I may. Um, and very limited in terms of like the gigabytes that they can consume. And so the best e-learning platform in our case would be something that allows you to get access to classes for free and that allows you to download the videos or at least consume them um, without consuming like your subscription, your internet subscription. So it would include classes to all sorts of different topics, be it yes. maths, be it different sciences, be it yes. French, be it Moroccan Arabic. Absolutely everything. Absolutely everything. However, it's a very big project. It costs a lot of money, right? And so I would start with science first, like math, physics, and mm -hmm. things like that, and maybe a language or two. But the other issue that I've had with that, I've talked to a lot of people about this project you know, to get feedback, is the language. Because I, as yeah. I told you in the beginning of this podcast, we have so many languages, people, and also we're changing the instruction language all the time, all the time. Sometimes it's French, sometimes it's standard Arabic, People also talk about English now. Wow. At home, we speak Moroccan Arabic. We do not speak. No one in Morocco speaks standard Arabic at home. Absolutely oh, no one. Tough. And so you have this, this problem of languages. As in, one of the issues that we have is also that people do not necessarily understand what they're taught. Because imagine you're like six years old and your parents talk in a language and then you go to school and the professor speaks in another language, what are you supposed to understand? Yeah. What are you supposed to understand? It's so complicated for a kid to switch like that, right? And I would say, sure, like if, if you go to a private school and you're part of the elite in a sense, yes, you can speak multiple languages very well, but it's not the case of everyone. It's an extra obstacle that we have. And so you have to choose a language. But again, there's a lot of pros and cons to that because let's say, okay, you want to choose French in Morocco, right? Some people are going to tell you it's good because our first economic partner is France. It's good because other African countries speak French. It's, they've all also been colonized by the country. Other people are going to tell you, no, you cannot adopt the language of the colonizer, right? Uh, it, it's, it's just not good for for the country and also we're a Muslim country. And so people are going to advocate for standard Arabic because the Quran has been written in Arabic. And so people are going to tell you, no, you have to learn Arabic first, not French. Some other people are going to tell you, oh no, we're, we're becoming international. Now we need to focus on English rather than French or Arabic. Some other people are going to tell you, oh, 
people in the north speak Spanish, so Spanish should also be taught. Some other people are going to tell you, no, it should be Moroccan because everyone speaks that in the street, at home, etc. And some other people are going to tell you, no, it should be Berber, which is another language essentially um, spoken, I think, by more than 3 million people in Morocco. And it's another alphabet. So we have three alphabets and like six languages. It's a mess. Everyone speaks something different, right? And so at the end of the day, you do have to make a choice. And so if I do a platform, I would do it in Moroccan Arabic because that's the language that everyone understands, even though, and that's an extra complication, it's not a real language. You cannot write Moroccan. I mean, you technically you can write it, but there is no official document that is written in Moroccan Arabic because so it's, it's still considered as exactly it's informal. It's informal. I think you kind of have some dictionaries that arise now, mm-hmm. some grammar rules or things like that. But the truth is, it's still not considered as a very formal language with formal rules. It's a mix of a lot of languages. You have a lot of French words in Moroccan Arabic. Um, some people now even mix it with English. Oh, wow. It's, I would say our language, Oof. which is, which is called Darija, is very representative of the country. You ask me, um, can you introduce Morocco? And that, that's what Morocco is. Morocco is a mix of cultures. It's a mix of, it's a lot of history. It's a lot of history, <laughs> mainly because of its, uh, geographical position, I would say. Like we're literally between like Africa and Europe. So it's very, uh, like strategically positioned. Yeah. And so, yeah, we, we, we have so much history, but, and you can see that in the languages and now in the education system, it's so hard to build an education system with like different languages and different like groups of people advocating for a language or for another, another language. And at the end of the day, a lot of people tell you, okay, the simple solution is to take a neutral language like English and like continue with it but the truth is we have no link with with like english it's just we have no history with with this language we have yeah. it's just the language of the future it's the language that everyone speaks so it, it could be a solution is it the solution i don't know but it could be so it's uh, an extremely difficult problem that we have yeah like this level alone like most countries fortunately don't have to face this issue uh, i mean there are a bunch especially amongst uh, um ex-colonized countries that are struggling with the language debate but like especially if you have not just two but several languages to choose from like you're always going to make someone unhappy and uh, the education system that's the like, problem already hard enough right like jesus yeah yeah Yeah, i'm I'm really curious how that will progress though that will be an interesting i'm really curious too case study (laughs) but the the the, the, no but the truth is it's been 50 years that we're going back and forth so oh really okay so this debate has been going on before yeah for 50 years jeez so before 1977 uh, if I'm correct, the main language was was French, but then they changed to standard Arabic, and they 
they've changed back and forth to French standard Arabic, French standard Arabic. And so they, they just cannot find a solution to that problem. And it's, it's a very hard problem. No one has a solution. I don't have a solution either. So it's a very complicated problem. But the truth is it's affecting a lot the quality of our education system. It's affecting also the the cohesion of our country, right? So if you have some people that speak a certain language and then some other people that speak another language, that's very problematic because you want people to be united, right? And so I think that's the most critical problem that we have to solve right now. At least if I were the Minister of Education, I would highly focus on something like that. Although, uh, I mean, he, he he's actually uh, focusing on, on many other things that are so important. Like, I, I really like the minister that we have right now. And I've always said that if we don't find solutions with him right now, we're doomed, essentially. Like, I, I don't see anyone better than him to save the country right now. What is he focusing on? He's working on a lot of things, but the, the thing that I like is that he's insisting a lot on that aspect of like um, using technology because he's an engineer. He went to Polytechnic in France, then to MIT. And so he's just insisting a lot and open. He's open compared to many uh, other ministers, like open to using technology um, in order to improve education. And that's what I particularly like. Okay. And also, also he understood uh, that focusing on the lower level was more important than focusing on the higher level. And I will justify this sentence. This is something also that I've seen at Stanford. There were lots of research uh, researchers that showed that most things happen when you're a kid, meaning that there, there, there's been some researchers that essentially wanted to see whether your cognitive abilities at the age of six would predict uh, the rest of your life in a sense. And they've seen that at six years old, if you like do a test, you can essentially predict with a certain level of accuracy, what will happen in your life, like financially. Um, and so the conclusion of that and other researchers have shown that as a country, if you had like a problem with your education system, you would rather want to focus on the lower levels rather than giving a second chance to the higher levels. Like solve the root of the problem first, focus on the lower level, give them a good education when they're four years old, six years old, eight years old, and then you can develop the rest. But if you have a problem with the lower levels and the higher levels, you would want to prioritize the lower levels. That has been research. Uh, that has been researched. I mean, the conclusions are very clear. And to be honest, you don't even need research to like think about that, right? Like if you start your life with a bad education, then of course you're going to have so many problems. It's just going to accumulate, right? It's going to snowball when you grow up. And so you really want to have a good education at first. Sounds intuitive, yeah. Although to a certain level, right? 
like at some point every effort you make towards developing younger education um will decrease the effectiveness and then you might look at like higher levels up but of course you first have to reach of course the level. Of course, you're right. You're right that you want to develop everything. I mean, ideally, you want to have everything developed. Yeah. But if you have a limited budget, if you have a limited budget, and you have to focus on something. Yeah, yeah. But again, if you want to focus on something, and the yeah. truth is, no, we don't have a good education system in Morocco, whether it's the lower levels or the higher levels. The truth is, we don't have a uh, like a good research output, for example. That That's the truth. If you look at countries like China, the U.S., um, if you compare their research with our research, I mean, let, let, let's be real, right? Um, they're just so much better. Um, and do so, you have lots and of also, we, we, we do have uh, a lot of universities, but the thing is they don't publish much. They're just mm-hmm. not good in research. And one of the mm-hmm. problems that was really interesting, there's been research on that as well. One of the problems that they have is that it's not that they don't, they don't publish because they're not good enough. It's also because they don't speak English enough. Yeah. That was really interesting. A lot of um, what is a huge students problem? have said that they want, yeah, yeah. They All wanted to publish, the but they just can. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, exactly. it's super difficult, right? Like, especially our parents' generation before the internet was along. It was so, like, you were 100% dependent to learn in English to. Um, the public school system. Uh, so, if you didn't learn English and then you ended up in science, like you kind of had to uh, learn English yourself and learning a new language again without much internet in your when you're already working, having a family, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yep. It's just a huge exactly. problem. I mean, fortunately, this is getting less and less. Like the English literacy rates across the world in a lot of countries increasing but still it is a hurdle that is easily overlooked like the language of the academia around the world is english so all the peer-reviewed journals or like not all but most um predominantly are in english and it's not just about speaking yeah. english or not speaking english right like just imagine being 10 percent or being being 10 percent worse like let's say English speakers in country A are ten percent worse in English than English speakers in country B. And when I say with English, I mean with expressing ideas in your field. Like this will already make quite an output. This will mean everything will be so much more work, regardless of your actual skill level in your field. Like writing so much harder, reviewing so much harder, understanding what your reviewers want of you. Is so much more difficult, etc., uh, etc., et or just understanding. Like so often with with academic papers, you read other people's papers and try to extract certain arguments, certain topics, but also like structural elements that yeah. are favored by the journal. Like if English is just harder for you than for everyone else, like your output will just not just be decreased by 10%, but by much more. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That, that's a big problem everywhere. Uh, but yeah, 
apart from that, um, I mean, even if people spoke English very well in Morocco, I don't think the research output would be very high. Because uh, mm-hmm. right now, not a lot of people go to higher education. I mean, we yeah. again, we still have a very high dropout rate at the lower level. So yeah. first, we might want to focus on that before thinking about higher education, even though it's also very important. Of course, I'm not saying higher education is not important. I insist on that. But I just think that right now we have a bigger problem at the lower levels. Um, Makes a lot of sense. Now, a bit more generally. So you decided to do education data science as your as a second master, um, which mm-hmm. included lots of um, commitment in terms of time, but also like financial resources. How how did you imagine the master to be, and how did you feel with what you received? I would say it went really well for me in the sense that, I mean, it went really bad and really well, both. Really bad because when you come from an African country and you go to Stanford, you have such a big imposter syndrome when you arrive that it absolutely destroys you. I know that it it really affected me when I arrived and because people... I mean, people around you are, are proud of you, of course, uh, but at the same time, you feel so much pressure because you're there and now you have to contribute and you have to show why you're there and that you're, you're worth it, basically. And so I've had, maybe it's, it's just, I've put a lot of pressure on myself, but then when I arrived, I was really sad. I was really excited and really sad at the same time because I felt so stressed and paralyzed at times that I couldn't work, for example. Like, I really like working. I really like what I do. But sometimes I would just shut down because I was paralyzed by fear, right? I was like, okay, everything that I will produce will not be good enough. And so I would just shut down, which is really bad. But like, this is something you can't control. And at the same time, I've really, I I would say I fought with my demons for like two years in order to prove myself that I, could be worth it and that I could have great ideas and produce a good work. I wouldn't say I'm I'm 100% proud of what I've done, but I'm proud of uh, the way I've evolved, I would say. Now I know what I like, what I don't like. I know what I want to do. I am convinced that I want to do something great for education, especially in Morocco. I know for a fact that this is the goal of my life. Of course, I can do other things besides education, but that is my main focus. For the next 40 years, I will definitely contribute to education around the world. And I do want to find a or more than one solution to spread free education. I really, that's, that's my focus. I want mm-hmm. people to have access to quality education for free. That is my main focus in life right now. It's always been like that, but now I'm convinced that I can do it, that I have the level to do it, Mm -hmm. that I have the tools to do it, that I have the network to do it as well, because it really matters. The people that you have around you, right? That it's just the people that are around you also that give you um, 
an image of what you can achieve that also give you opportunities to achieve what you want to achieve, right? And so it was really good in that regards, in the sense that, okay, I've stressed a lot, I've suffered a lot, but at the same time, first of all, you cannot complain. Like when you're in Stanford, you cannot complain, for sure. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm not complaining. I'm just saying that it was it was hard uh, personally to convince myself that I, that I could achieve something and that I could contribute. But now I'm convinced that it will happen. So it was really a feeling of sure. being inferior to all the other students? Or how do you define that? Not inferior to the other students. I don't feel inferior to other Stanford students. I yeah. think I'm, I'm like the average Stanford student, right? Like not the best, not the worst, but like pretty good. But that's not the problem. The problem is when you come from a poor country, right? Um, or at least a developing country. I won't say a poor country, but a developing country in Africa. You ask yourself, like, why me? Why me? Among 38 million people, why? Do I have the chance to go? And all these other people do not have the chance to go to like foreign countries and study, right? That's extremely unfair. And when you face something so unfair, of course, you start doubting yourself. And you start telling yourself that maybe you're not enough. Maybe you shouldn't have been chosen. Maybe someone else should have gone. Because the truth is, I don't believe in meritocracy, right? I don't believe in merit. I think a lot of a lot of people in Morocco have much more merit than I do. They have worked much more than I did. I've worked a lot, don't get me wrong. But some people, of course, deserve it more than me. It's just that they didn't have the financial opportunities or social opportunities to reach the same level. And so that's why it's so hard also to convince yourself that okay, like you're at the right place, right? That you belong. And also because, I mean, you, you, you come from, again, a developing country and you see all these people at Stanford that are absolutely brilliant, that sometimes are sons of like millionaires, billionaires, right? And you're like, do I really belong? Like, am I enough for these people as well? Okay, so you feel like the comparison that you're comparing yourself to everyone in Morocco and asking yourself, okay, yeah, um, of all the people, why me? And then also yeah. being there, how do I compare to like everyone around me, given that it's Stanford yeah, but and it, it has such a high prestige? Exactly. Hmm. Yeah, it has a high prestige. But also, the issue that I've had is that now... so. The reason why I've reached a high academic level is because I'm someone that listens a lot and that asks a lot of questions, like a lot. Because I consider that I don't know anything about life and that everyone can teach me something. <laughs> That's a really Absolutely good approach. Everyone can teach me something, right? And so, no, I really think so. I think that everyone has, like, everyone is good in a certain domain. No one knows everything. Right? So you no. should listen to someone and learn. And so I ask a lot of questions. Whenever I meet someone, just ask a lot of questions. You won't see me answer a lot, 
I ask a lot of questions. And the problem that I've had when I went to Stanford is even my close friends would tell me, when I ask questions, they would tell me, oh, you don't, you don't know that, but you went to Stanford. You don't know that. You're supposed to be a genius, right? And that was such a bad feeling because like the thing that made the person that I am was just gone. I cannot ask questions anymore. Otherwise, people are just going to oh, mock okay. me or uh, or just tell me, like, how come you don't know that? Like, you're supposed to know everything. You're supposed to be the Stanford genius. And that the, the answer that I have is just, I'm absolutely not a genius. Mm. I know some stuff because I ask questions. Yeah. Right? That's precisely why I'm at Stanford, because I ask questions. Yeah. Right? And now <laughs> I cannot do it anymore. And that's very frustrating. Do you feel like you can't? do that anymore with certain people or do you feel like generally uh, this this is something you feel across all interactions that you have no with certain people of course i mean if 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 i hang out with people at harvard or stanford or of course like we can discuss and we we, we know like we're in the same uh circle let's say but whenever you go back To like where you come from yeah and people have this image of stanford as, yeah. as like oh it's just a bunch of geniuses right yeah i'm like I, i'm absolutely not a genius i don't pretend to be a genius i've, I've yeah. never said that right so i don't, I don't think people think that comes do, up all the time like I, i don't think i've met anyone at stanford yet that that would self-describe as a genius Like in general, I want to say for everyone, well, they, they are, seem pretty, pretty humble, sometimes maybe with their head in the clouds in terms of what they want to do, like the dreams and aspirations. Like it's certainly a very aspirational place. But generally, uh, I feel people's self-perception is, is not more delusional than in other academic places that I've experienced. Yes, but what you say is absolutely normal because the core of a genius is that he or she doesn't know that they're a genius. Because if you think you're a genius, then it means that the, thing that, the things that you do are not normal to you. What, what's a genius for you? When you see someone and you say, oh, that person is a genius, it's because that person does things that appear absolutely impossible to do for you. But it, if it's yourself, if you do these things, then for you, it's not genius, right? Like Albert Einstein would not qualify himself as a genius because the things that he does are absolutely normal for him, but like not normal for the rest of the people. So if you self-identify as a genius, you're not a genius. <laughs> that, that's, I disagree. That's my I think okay, that, like for me, for me, genius is like having the ability to advance in a certain field because everyone has to choose in a certain field more than other people, uh, like very, very significantly more. That doesn't mean that it's. 100% just um, cognitively based. There's also a lot of, let's say, how you perceive the world and how you perceive life 
in a lot of ways that brings you to this high level of um, performance. But a lot of it in what I understand and how I other people see use that word is like comes from the cognitive point that they have it easier to understand certain let's say problems, certain systems, certain ways to solve them than someone else might. And they are using that to really advance something to really to really show like you, you have to see it right like if someone is just like super smart but just stays in his room and doesn't produce anything like you you might even think the person is dumb or lazy uh like it has to come right. to the outside somewhat it's something perceived it i think you're right in that um it has to be kind of perceived from the outside someone else has to classify it it's really hard to self-classify yourself as a genius because it kind of is in relationship to or in comparison to others. Uh, but I still think that it's, you can see yourself as a genius. Like maybe, I don't know him, but like the feeling or like the, the stories you hear about Anthony Hopkins, for example, like that was maybe self-classified as a genius as well. Certainly from the outside, Maybe he just, at some point, picked up what other people said about him, uh, or maybe some people who got like the what is it, the MacArthur Fellowship, uh, the Genius mm-hmm. Fellowship. I think there are there are people that they might classif- self classify themselves as geniuses as well. Have you heard of the Dunning Kruger effect? Do you know what that is? Ah, oh, yes, I've heard of that. Yeah. Help me out here. It's it's not a verified theory. It's not a verified theory, <laughs> but what basically what it what, basically what it says, and I pretty much agree with that. It's very logical. It's just that the more you know, the less you think you know, oh, and the less yeah. you know, the more you think you know, right? Yeah. And so I I, I really do think that the more you know about a certain topic, the more you see all the things that you don't know about it. The more you yeah. see like all the difficulties about that topic, and the more you think you're done. And so I really. I really don't think that you can you can be like a real genius in the field and think that like you're a genius because you see all these these things that you don't know about it like all the the all the things you're ignorant about right yeah. but when you're ignorant you're like oh this is simple because you don't know like all the things yeah. that you don't know that is true <laughs> so that, that that's a very interesting thing so that, that that's how I tell you I don't believe that if you're a true genius, you're going to self-identify as a mm. genius. I think okay. that as a genius perceived by other people, you're going to think you're pretty dumb. Mm. Right? Because you said that, in that, relationship to everything that is out there, everything that is unknown. Yeah. So okay. it, like, the more I know about machine learning and data science, the more I realize I'm so bad at it. Like... <laughs> I thought I was good in the beginning, but then the more you see like ah. all the problems and all the obstacles that, that are there, and then we're like, oh my God, like I'm so bad at it. Like I'm so dumb. But the truth is maybe other people don't perceive me as dumb, but like I'm, I'm maybe I'm, I'm also very hard with myself, but I, I really consider that I'm a dumb person that works a lot, right? Maybe that's true. Maybe that's not true, but that's just the image that I have of myself. 
And that's why I tell you, maybe I think I'm dumb because I'm learning and I'm evolving. And maybe that thinking that you're dumb might be a positive thing sometimes, right? Of course, you don't have to, to like, um, criticize yourself to the point that you're sad and depressed, which I've done in the past and was a very bad strategy. But at least if you're a bit hard with yourself, I mean, that, that's a very good thing. And that, that's a way for you to evolve as a person, as a professional and as a person, of course. Fully agree. I think I also identified why we perceive genius differently because what you just described sounds to me that you are measuring at it against everything else that is out there. Like you just said, like the more you learn about machine learning, the more you feel like you don't know anything because you're measuring against everything else you now know you don't know, like your known unknowns. When I when we talked about genius, the way I look at it is like in a social context. So if you're only exposed to a hundred people and you are clearly more able in a lot of ways than all the other 100, you might be classified as a genius. Regardless if you living 10,000 years prior where men knew very little about the world, and we still do, uh, but just because it's in relationship to everyone else and not really about the absolute standard of knowing a lot. I, I get what you mean. I get what you mean, but it's with a, like with certain people. So you said with like 100 people, right? Mm -hmm. And in a certain context, because what is a genius? Like if you put me with like 99 other people and you compare my level of, I don't know, data science, sure, I might be better than the 99 others. But then ask me to draw something, for example, and you see that I'm an idiot. So it really depends on like <laughs> it what depends we're on the field. About. Yes, one hundred percent. It depends on the field. Like you might be yeah. very good in the field and an absolute idiot in another yeah. field. So I, I don't like this word, like genius. Like no. sure, you're a genius in certain settings, right? But it like also, it never sits wrong. You don't. Know, no one knows everything. Yeah. Right. It it always sounds very no one, presumptuous in a way. Yeah. <laughs> like, again, no, no one, no, no one knows everything, and that's why I like asking questions, and I think that's so important. You can learn something from absolutely everybody, whether it's a rich person, a poor person, a smart person, a dumb person. I don't like this word. I hate saying that someone is dumb because I think no one is dumb. I just think we have different uh, experiences, and even the person that you think is dumb is going to be better than you at something for sure. For sure, you're never going to be better at everything. That's absolutely impossible. We're all different. We have different abilities. We have different passions, different experiences. And so I really insist on that. You can learn something for absolutely everybody. And you better ask questions to everybody when you meet someone. Mm -hmm. You better ask questions because that's why, that's exactly how you're going to evolve and learn things. Yeah. Of course, some people are more passionate than other people, more interesting in a way. At least they share their passion and their experiences more than other people, yeah. right? And so you could say, oh, this person is smarter or more interesting. But uh, I really insist on the fact that people should ask more questions 
yeah. and should not judge the others for asking questions. The yeah. worst thing that you can do in education is to tell someone that he or she is dumb because he or she asked a question. That's yeah. the worst thing you could do. Then I really have to say, I really appreciate about Stanford, about the lectures, about the classes, that it really feels like a place where you can always ask questions. Like I was so yeah. struck yeah. by how how comfortable you feel um, and how, how you really... <laughs> how can you put that? Um, there are certain certain contexts when you ask a question, you feel like that the person you direct the question to is not very happy either with spending time on that or just because they don't see the value in your question. I never experienced that at Stanford. Like it doesn't matter whom you talk to. Question like people are always really really happy to ask you answer your question. Also from the perspective from like from lecturer perspective, that probably if you dare to ask that question, so many other people also have it. So you're actually helping a lot of people. It's a really good investment. But on the other hand, also just because if you have a question, it should be answered. As simple as that. I and so agree. cool. I completely agree. Yeah. It, I, I, would, I would still say I've done a lot of self-censorship in, in Stanford because I don't want people to think that I'm done. I'm very like self-conscious about that because I feel yeah. like sometimes my questions are just are just stupid. But the truth is... I don't think any question is inherently stupid and everything should be asked. Um, so you're right in that sense that, and I've asked a few questions and, and people didn't judge me necessarily. So you're absolutely right that people are just curious at Stanford and they, everyone answers your questions when you ask them, which is really amazing. Yeah. So I'm, was just thinking how much of that might also be a grad school thing. But I mean, then again, I, I had classes with undergrads as well. But if I, if I would just yeah. think it, it in grad school, everyone comes from a different background. And as you said, you can't be a master of everything. You can't be great at everything. So it's totally clear that there will, like people will ask questions that you already have an answer to just walking into the class, like not even because it has already been talked about. But just like walking into the class because you have different prior knowledge. Um, so it's like totally normal. And even like honestly, it's always great when someone asks a question to specify, to clarify, because at least you could try to answer it in your head faster than the person answering it. And then it's like, like practice, right? Like if you would do flashcards. Um, exactly. And in the other hand, yeah. you might identify uh, misinformation in your head, false information in your head. Hmm. Yeah, exactly. To, but I think, yeah, like in our case, uh, uh, I would say in our case, the fact that we're between the school of education and the school of engineering also stressed me a bit in the beginning because we're like, okay, I'm I'm sitting with engineers. I'm not like, I haven't done a bachelor in engineering, right? Yeah. And so sometimes I felt like, oh, if I ask these questions, everyone's going to know it, right? So maybe I'm just, maybe I'm just making them lose their time. And so I would say that that's a drawback maybe of the program that like, you should know a lot about education and engineering as well. Uh, 
but like you have some people that are specialized in education and some people that are specialized mm-hmm. in engineering. So like you always feel like the dumbest person in the room, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, it makes total sense. I've ever been, if you want to combat this psychological hurdle of asking questions, when you know that, for example, you have no engineering background, you sit in a class of mostly engineers. I find one thing that helps me yeah. is sit in the front row, first row. It's only you and the lecturer. You yeah, don't see the faces yeah, of everyone else. That's a good else. advice. Yeah, that's a great advice. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so you now you walked out with your degree with a successful capstone project. Like for everyone who's listening, yeah. who's starting grad school, starting at Stanford right now, or thinking, or just curious to know how it is. Can you? Think back to Othman three years ago, like right around when you were thinking of applying. What mm-hmm. would you want to clarify for Othman three years ago? Which misconceptions would you want to get out of the way? And which other things would you want to let him know? that Stanford is what you make of it. You decide the number of classes that you want to take. You decide what classes you want to take. You decide who you want to talk to. You decide absolutely everything. And so I would tell my old self, really take advantage of the thing that you're going to leave, of this experience that you're going to leave, because it's a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. The people that you meet at Stanford, they're absolutely brilliant, passionate, and interesting. And if I had to change something, I would say, I regret not meeting enough people. I've learned a lot, mainly from classes. But I would say, if you go to Stanford, focus on the people that you're going to talk to and that you're going to meet. That is the most important because you can do a computer science class at home, but you cannot meet a Stanford student at home. That's something you cannot do, unfortunately. And so, yeah, the main thing is focus on people. Focus on people because they are absolutely brilliant. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Hmm. Okay. I'll take it to heart. I have another year that I could leverage. I mean, oh, really, but uh, I mean, you yeah. have a different personality. Like yeah, you're you're, sure. you're an extrovert, right? And sure. so you 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 meet people all the time. Like I've seen you, I've seen the master at work. Like you meet and you talk to absolutely everyone. We're completely different, right? Um, I usually like to stay in my room and do math, but like you like to meet people. And so I think your strategy is way better than mine. You're doing a great job already. <laughs> Uh, thank you but uh i'm yet of course your advice was to pass Othman, but uh i still i still appreciated your advice um it's it's weird i was i was thinking of it the other day because like now year two starts and uh like a year ago i just couldn't imagine at all what it what it would be like like just a 
the classes, the people, the environment. Um, and I'm still not 100% sure if I, if I could answer all those, those questions. Like classes vary so heavily, right? Like, especially from department to department. Like in education, you yeah. rarely find classes that are larger than 30 people. In computer science, you rarely find classes that are smaller than 50 people. <laughs> um, than 300 people. <laughs> <I feel like laughs> They're this so is a, big. <laughs> um, and then you have yeah. so many other departments as well. So it makes it, it makes it really like there's, yeah. there are so many different Stanford's people experience. For sure, for sure. Again, it's what you make of it. Yeah. You think about it. How, how was your experience now? I'm asking you the question. Like, are you proud of what you've achieved so far? Like, would you like to change something? Um, do you regret anything? Like, what's your point of view? I mean, there's a bit of a, a tainted view on things because I only got to experience like half of the year, unfortunately, because of the yeah, of course. Um, leave yeah. of absence. But like, just thinking of the first quarter, that I really got to experience. Hmm. Hard. Like, I feel like I made it, I made it myself a little harder than had, had to be like in terms of just like blowing through things and just not appreciating the, the challenges and I just I perceive them more as mm -hmm. challenges I really had to overcome and not as challenges that are just great opportunities to overcome like whenever we're sitting um, in front of a project or homeworks it's just easy to get frustrated when you know there are so many other things you should spend your time on and there's always like the opportunity cost it's not only like the responsibilities that you have but it's exactly what you said it's what you make of it and you want to make all happen you want to have all the interesting classes you want to have meet all the interesting people you want to do use all the sports environment and opportunities that you have and then it's not just stanford right i mean stanford's campus alone can fill your time several times every day but it's all the surroundings as well like just going up to san francisco there's a lot to do yeah. In Palo Alto, there are a lot of people to meet, although it's a, maybe a little hard to meet people. Everyone is in a bubble, but still. Uh, so this is this folk, like really focusing on something. Um, I tr I knew that because just talking to people from your cohort um, before coming to Stanford at the beginning, the advice I heard the most is like really focus on something, like really focus on um what you want to get out of it because otherwise you feel like you tried everything but didn't specialize uh so there's certain uh, something like i learned i met a lot like especially in the first couple of weeks i really tried to go to a lot of events meet a lot of people and i met a lot of really cool people like just the the sgsi the summer graduate institute i don't know what exactly yeah. the abbreviation stands for but just those two weeks of classes that you could take for free i mean this was so cool and i'm still talking and meeting a lot of the people there like there are two people that i see every quarter a couple of times just go for lunch 
hang out. Like both of them are Aero Astros, so like nothing to do with what I study, but just because they're really yeah. cool people. And you accumulate all those really cool people. Mm. And um, this yeah, is certainly something I want to say. I, I've done a, I, how do you call it? Like, uh, met expectation, my expectations when it comes to having really good conversations and meeting really cool people. Um, there, I'm really happy. Now in the second year, I really want to narrow down on interest. So I've now, like, this is also something I had no idea about before coming to Stanford, like in terms of what do I want to do walking out of here? I'm, I am entrepreneurial. I want to run my own thing at some point, whatever that means. But uh, I knew that after leaving the masters, I will have to take a job for financial reasons. So I think, and that's what Stanford really helped me with. You get exposure to so many people that have jobs, had jobs, do a lot of cool things. And I really got fascinated with uh, product management roles. And this is actually something I want to zoom in more. Basically meaning product management has a lot to do with understanding other people. You kind of work like in the intersection of the designers, the intersection of the developers, the intersection of like business drivers, moving sales. So everything that has to do with fulfilling the customer's needs with your product, but also fulfilling the business needs with the product. That sounds like a super exciting role, but there's like so much to learn because I'm not a designer. I'm also not an engineer. Um, so there is a lot to learn. And I think Stanford can really help me in the second year also to get there. Plus, take away as many cool use cases for educational problems. Because as you said, it's so easy when you know nothing to go into things and be like, oh, there's a problem and you can solve it with X. But then you actually understand the problem deeper. And sometimes actually what you thought is the problem isn't even the problem. And more oftentimes your initial solution for it is just not great. <laughs> so I want that um, yeah. also because um, I don't yet see like the one use case that I want to commit my life to. But I'm fully aligned with you with I see that education has some of the greatest power to move societies to a better place. And healthcare takes away so many great people. Uh, so I feel like more people should commit to the field of education. And I'm really interested in committing to that as well. Yeah, I completely agree. And uh, also, I mean, our field, like the application of data science to education is rather new. If you think about it, there's not a lot of research nah. about that compared to other fields. It's very limited. And I feel like we're the first group of people to like talk about it and like develop it, right? Or it is, yeah. It's a very... It's a very small circle around the world, I would say. There's not a lot of researchers that do that. The question that I have for you, because now I'm interviewing you, uh, <laughs> is like, do you know, like, do you want to do part of your career, or like maybe a major part of your career in education? Or like, is it something that you think you might leave one day? Like, what's your view on that? Do you want to uh, do like all your life in education or? So 
the way I see it right now is when it when it comes to my whole life, I certainly want to find an aspect, an educational problem that I really want to dive into. Doesn't have to mean that my first job out of out of the masters has to be in education. Doesn't even have to mean that the first company I do is within the educational realm because it's there. What I really don't like is this: I have to solve this problem. Like with educational problems, mm-hmm. I feel like I want these problems to be solved. Doesn't have to be me. And there is a mm-hmm. thing like people problem fit like found a market fit okay. where you just, you really have to know your stuff. And I'm not in the situation right now where I know a lot about anything. Like running a company alone, regardless of the field, is super hard. And you have to up your odds with getting great at that and then use that as a vehicle to really make a difference because there is no benefit for the world with another ad tech startup that blows up, takes a lot of funding, and then goes bust without helping anyone. Because especially when it comes to formal education, ethic and formal education in schools and universities, there's such a high cost of adoption. And mm-hmm. you're just frustrating the heck out of everyone involved if your company goes bust after onboarding them for several years. And that's like real damage. Definitely. So like yeah. just this case alone it's not like i don't know some consumer product where people if it's broke it's broke if it doesn't continue it doesn't continue their life might not change it's just more significant so i feel i have the responsibility to really get it right and to really be set up in a way financially with experience in the life situation where i can really see it through to the end and i don't feel i'm there right now and i'm probably not going to be there in two or three years but eventually, yes, um, I wanna, I wanna invest my time, thoughts, resources, network towards solving problems in education. Okay. Okay. Interesting. Yeah, I'm really excited to see like what everyone does in our cohorts, like the, the next <laughs> cohort of EDS people, like. Everyone has a different story. Everyone is so interesting and passionate that I'm very curious to see where people are going to be in 10 years. And I, I mean, according to what I saw, people will have a great future, I think. At least I hope they will because it, the people that I've met in our different cohorts are brilliant and passionate. I'm really happy about the, the people that I've met here. Yeah. You had a lot of really cool people. Yeah, I'm not really good experience. I'm not really worried about their like well-being from like a, let's say objective standpoint. Of course, life can be really tough mm-hmm. for in a lot of ways, but of in terms of like how they are yeah. equipped, knowledge-wise, and also just coming from Stanford, a lot of companies will be really happy to take you in. Um, maybe not exactly in the position that you want to because education data science, is, as you said, it's a mix. There are people who know more in education. There are people who know more 
about data science walking out of there. Uh, so you really have to find yeah. a niche, but then again, you have to prove yourself anyways. So you might as well start in one of them and then prove yourself that you're able to do both. Yeah. <laughs> See, right, deep in thought. Right, right. Deep in thought. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just like, I just realized I finished that, you know, it's been two years, like two years of which just went so fast. Yeah. So fast. But uh, yeah, I'm happy it happened. Really happy it happened. And hopefully, I really want us to create a sense of community. I think you're contributing a lot to that, but like creating a sense of community within the EDS uh, cohorts. Um, and like everyone should stay in contact because I think we have a lot of potential to work together or at least talk together and give each other ideas. Uh, we should We should all stay connected and and I think the adventure is going to be even greater in the future. The I think more so people too. join, the better it will be. I think right? so too. And it's a very manageable increase within the community, right? Like 10 to 15 people a year. Yeah. And even if they double it to 30, like 30 people to integrate in a community, uh, that's, that's doable. I don't, I don't think they're going to double it. I don't think they're going to double it. <laughs> Yeah, maybe in 10, 15 it's years. It's already you know. a lot to manage. <laughs> yeah, maybe you don't know. You don't know. Uh, not for uh, now. But this not is actually now. one thing because you asked me about uh, like goals coming to Stanford. One of it was yeah. to make EDS people each other's biggest stakeholders in the future. That is literally yeah. something I wrote down yeah. in my statement of purpose. And it was something, I think I even said at the first EDS event, that's just like very important to me. And it's a little tough because everyone is like very busy and focused on a million things. But I feel like it, step by step, we're getting there, especially the new cohort seems also very enthusiastic. And we're going to push it more and more towards more connection, more collaboration, bigger network effect. Yeah, exactly. Well, that, that's also why I accepted to be here and to contribute to like the different events that you organize. Even though, as I told you, like I'm an introvert, so that's a very hard exercise mm. for me. I do it because I think it's very useful and it, it actually contributes a lot to the community. So I think it's absolutely necessary. Um, even though it's a hard exercise, again, it's it's just, it's it's very good, very useful. So yeah, thank you for that because you're contributing a lot. Sure. I mean... It's uh, you can always create the opportunities, but then in the end, people also have to make use of them. Like this is one of the most yeah, important things that people show interest and participate. Um, yeah, yeah, definitely. But man, thanks a lot. This was a fun podcast. Thanks to you. <laughs> if people want to reach You're out nice, to you, so thank you. Can they? Can they reach you somewhere? Yeah, of course. I mean, my LinkedIn, Otman Bensuda Koraishi. Um, I'm, I'm always available to talk to people. So just like drop a message or yeah, ask my WhatsApp and call me. Um, yeah, I'm always available. So just reach out. <laughs> I will answer to you for I will answer for sure. I will answer for sure. <laughs> Whoever you are, Perfect. just feel free to contact me. 
and you'll get an answer. Perfect. Looking forward to seeing you again in the Bay. And everyone else, thank you for listening. Bye. Bye.